Hi, welcome to another episode of Auto Service World Conversations. I'm Peter Bulmer, owner of Cars Magazine and Jobber News. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring issues facing today's Canadian aftermarket professionals, sponsored by SiriusXM Canada. SiriusXM is making it possible to offer your customers three months of free satellite radio. Go to SiriusXM.ca slash four shops for details. Last week off air, you and I were talking about something that you felt was important to mention, uh, which was foreign trade zones. So I'm going to kind of give you the floor on this. And can you explain to us what they are, why they're important? So a foreign trade zone is an area that's physically located within the United States, but economically sits outside of the United States, which means that goods that are in a foreign trade zone have not yet entered the U.S. economy. So the best way to explain this example is to take BMW, who over 20 years ago set up a foreign trade zone in Greer, South Carolina. And the purpose of that process was that they shifted the manufacturing of certain automobile lines uh, to the United States, which is one of their biggest markets globally. And the idea in their foreign trade zone is that they import goods to do the manufacturing from the same places that they purchase the goods in their manufacturing in Germany. But when those goods come into the foreign trade zone, there's no responsibility at that time to pay any duties or taxes because the goods are not customs cleared at that point in time. They only pass through the border into the foreign trade zone. And it's only when they come out is there the responsibility to pay duties or taxes. So the first benefit of foreign trade zone is the deferral of duties and taxes until point of value, which is when you make the sale and the goods leave the warehouse. The second aspect is there's a tariff shift which occurs where you take goods that come in at an average duty rate of 4 to 8% coming in as machine tools, engines, tires, leather seating, electronics, various automobile components, and now get transferred into an automobile, which when that comes into the United States, comes in at a lower duty rate at 2%. So you have what's called a tariff shift. So the other benefit of the foreign trade zone in manufacturing relates to the fact that uh, custom says to you that you could choose the lower duty rate of the inbound goods or the outbound goods, whichever works to your advantage. So in BMW's case, the cars come out at a lower duty rate than the actual parts and components in what we call tariff shift. So in that case, there's a significant benefit to BMW because uh, the parts and components come in at a much higher duty rate than a finished automobile. The additional benefit of the foreign trade zone is that uh, you don't have to do transactional customs clearances when the goods come out. You can do weekly manifest clearances, which means you can take all the activity of the goods that are coming in and out of the facility and declare that to customs once a week. So your transactional cost of importing comes down dramatically. It impacts the customs clearance charges. It also impacts an area called the merchandise processing fee dramatically. And the last benefit, which is really important, and particularly to a company like BMW, is if the goods get exported from the United States and in their plant in South Carolina, they have a huge export program of those finished automobiles, you never have to pay duties and taxes on those parts and components that came in because the goods would never have entered the United States economically. They come in 
into the foreign trade zone and they go out to the out of the foreign trade zone and export it so they never enter the u.s economy so the foreign trade zone provides huge economic advantage which is why most of the major car companies of the world including the u.s manufacturing companies uh, operate in foreign trade zones where they get that great benefit and again if we looked at the fortune thousand companies you know about 15 percent of them are directly or indirectly involved in foreign trade zones here in the United States. And they do that because they get great economic benefit. So for companies that are in your uh, industry vertical and don't necessarily have to be in manufacturing, if you're involved in distribution, you get many of those benefits. So it should be something that should be looked at by companies to see whether or not it would work. And that's one of the services that we've offered to your a business vertical and your organizations that you represent is to be able to do that initial analysis for free and at no cost to see whether or not it would make sense. And then if it does make sense, then to create an engagement where we actually help the company become a foreign trade zone. Yes, yeah, so I have a few follow-up questions that you sort of touched on there. Like a normal way to think about this like to the layman would be is when I get off the airport, when I get off the airplane at JFK, coming in from Canada, it's like that limbo zone before I actually clear customs, except for goods. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess you can call it, you could, you could compare it to that. Right. Okay. And so how does one create or make a foreign trade zone? The uh, Department of Commerce has a group called the International Trade Administration in Washington, and they have authority given by the federal government to administer all foreign trade zones around the country. Now, the International Trade Administration doesn't have the bandwidth or the personnel in all the gateways around the world and all the, uh, around the United States and all the locations around the United States. So uh, they authorize various state governments to have a sub-level of authority, and the states usually give that authority to various economic development agencies, port authorities, and different association groups that generally work in and around various gateways or major cities around the country where foreign trade zones are more likely to be developed. So through an application process, through those governing local agencies, it gets ramped up and eventually sent into Washington for approval. Once that approval comes out, uh, U.S. Customs, Customs Border and Protection, they get involved with actually finalizing the process of a company becoming a foreign trade zone. And basically what a company has to do in the application process is be able to, one, to show the benefit, meaning that there has to be a benefit to the company to get into that status, meaning there has to be some economic savings to the company to go forward, which obviously would no company would want to go forward if there wasn't that kind of benefit. But you have to evidence that to the government. And secondly, you have to raise the bar of import and export compliance and security at the facility because you're now becoming a, an extension of the U.S. government uh, under the Foreign Trade Zone uh, Act. And so um, you evidence that to the government. Customs comes in to affirm that you meet all those standards and then you're given the foreign trade zone status through a certification uh, process. And then you have to manage the responsibilities according to the FTZ guidelines that are established in Washington. So in a very simplified concept, that's how it is. 
But obviously, when you get down to the detail level, it becomes a little bit more complicated. And that's the service that we provide is we handhold the company through that process to make sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed to make sure that they uh, get the benefits of the foreign trade zone to meet all the, the challenges and then eventually get to that status. And then we help them manage that responsibility to they, until a point in time they can do it independently by themselves. Yeah, I, I was just thinking to myself, my God, that's a lot of hoops. I can only imagine it's a bureaucratic nightmare um, if you were to try to do it, that on it your is own. A, it is initially to get the paperwork done and so forth. And, you know, it's like always where somebody buying a home or selling a home, you use a lawyer to help you through some of the paperwork. It's kind of the role that we fill is we help you to make sure you get all that paperwork done correctly and responsibly and timely. But beginning to end, the process only takes about 60 to 90 days. So as long as all the information is there and everybody is transparent, you can get this thing moved along pretty quickly. The government has a lot of incentives to make sure these things happen because it moves manufacturing and distribution here to the United States. It makes it more cost effectively, which makes it more robust. Um, and it makes the U.S. operations more competitive. Um, and that's part of the goals of the government. So they they have an incentive to move these things along pretty quickly, uh, which they do. Right. And I had one more question about foreign trade zones before we move on. This is unimportant just for my own curiosity. You were mentioning that the companies don't need to report to customs everything that's in their holding. Is that right? They don't have to report it. What happens is, is that when the goods come through the border, instead of a customs clearance using technology, they just transfer to customs a report, it's called a 214, that just says, here's what we're bringing into the country and moving into foreign trade zone number 123. So that customs is aware that the goods are transiting from the port or the airport or, or the border crossing yeah. into the foreign trade zone. So it's just somebody taking a manifest that they have electronically and hitting a button and transferring that to customs. Yeah. And customs, is there is there a limit on the goods that you can hold in that way? Or is it? No, it's good. You have a carte blanche. As, as long as they're legal, you yeah. know, you're not dealing with any illegal things. You can bring anything into the, the foreign trade zones. But you do have to create a firm to customs that you do have an accountability system, usually a technology that manages the inventory that comes in and that goes out so that at any point in time, if they were to question to you where something is at in the supply chain, that you're able to tell them. Understood. So technology and is part of the foreign trade zone management, which really becomes an extension of a company's you know, operating system or their ERP system is usually what happens is they, it just gets... Uh, brought up to a higher level in order to accommodate the requirements. Yeah, got it. And I don't want to keep you here all day, Tom, but I did want to sort of ask the obvious question, which is, if things are going at their current pace, I mean, given that you have sort of a unique overview of the supply chain industry at large, what kind of timeline can we expect to get back to a, if maybe if not a pre-COVID level, at least some sort of a normal sort of business as usual? Um, system as it relates to the supply chain industry as a whole? Well, we're starting to see glimmers of that now. Um, everybody in supply chain is starting to see an easing up of every aspect of the supply chain. Part of that is due with the fact that they've become better at managing the problems. And two is the fact that demand and capacity are coming closer together. We have lots of companies who actually 
past to advise him of this specific question that you're asking. So our belief is that we're going to every month now and every week, we're going to see an improvement in the supply chain. Goods coming out of Asia, peak season will probably occur a little bit earlier this year as being predicted and be a little bit more robust than it was last year because nobody felt it as to the extent that you normally feel peak season. So putting that aside, we're seeing that every week and every month that the situation is going to get better. And the betterment will be seen in the fact that things will work more timely. Um, but we expect that it will probably be the first quarter of 2023 where we'll start to see pre-COVID the systems working as they were pre-COVID, which means the uh, January, February of 2020 will get to that point of time uh, by the first quarter of 2023. When we get to the second quarter of 2023, we believe it will be already phased in. As respects to pricing, the fact that pricing has gone up dramatically, we don't expect the pricing to come back to pre-COVID pricing. So I mentioned before that the ocean freight pricing, which was at maybe $2,500, grew to $25,000. Now is at around seven, dollars $8,000. We expect it to come down to maybe five dollars or $6,000 and kind of level off there. So we don't think that pricing will come back to pre-COVID It'll probably be about maybe as much as 20 to 30% more, but it's not going to be the crazy numbers that we saw through 2020 and 2021. So shipping will normalize in terms of creating a booking. Manufacturing will normalize in terms of when we have to place orders and so forth like that. But pricing uh, will not be the pre-COVID as it once was. But there is a light of the tunnel, you could say. I think so, because... Um, the issue is that the steamship lines, which I've been involved with for close to 40 years now, never have consistently made money. Um, and therefore, not having made money, they never invested in the supply chain, in additional vessels, capacity, advancements, and the resources to do it right. But they now, for the first time ever, have made significant amount of money. They are wisely reinvesting that money to create greater assets and, and infrastructure. They're also expanding into service portfolios. A lot are getting involved in warehousing and distribution, freight forwarding, air freight, air freight companies getting involved in ocean freight and so forth. So we're seeing all this expansion. So I think that the fact is that they found pricing which can support them to manage their businesses more successfully. And when, when carriers manage their businesses more successfully, we as shippers, importers, exporters, and distributors, we will do better along with them. So I think that higher pricing will support a whole betterment in the supply chain at the end of the day. All right. Well, Tom, you've been absolutely wonderful. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything that we didn't get to that you'd like to communicate to our listeners? I think one of the lessons that's learned from the last two years is that resource development is very important in managing your responsibilities. Having dependency on just a few was never going to be adequate. When when you have this disruption take place, you have to have a, a much wider group of resources to draw upon. And your the organizations that you represent are, you know, trying to be that resource, I think, successfully to their membership. And I think that's important for companies to support that and pay attention to it and develop a much greater portfolio of resources and capability. And the status quo that was there pre-COVID 
doesn't exist anymore. And I think we need to be sensitive to that and operate in that new new arena where we have to pay attention to detail to a much greater extent. Well, very well said. Tom, eloquent, informative, great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And everyone be safe and be well. This has been another episode of Auto Service World Conversations with your host, Peter Bowler. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And thank you, as always, to SiriusXM Canada for being our title sponsor.